One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Lovely to have you with me as we travel through space and time together, of course, to help support the making of this podcast and to get all important extra content why not sign up to my patreon.com site? You get new videos every week, fresh off the presses, uh, a question and answer session when I answer questions on everything and anything. We have the odd competition for prizes. Um, you get first grab, first bite at my weekly monologue slash rant about the state of the nation. Uh, and most important of all, you simply become part of the family of time travellers. And it's easy to join. Go to patreon.com, look for me by name, pay monthly or annually, and that's it. And it would be great to see you there. Okay, it's time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. All the way from early Japanese and Chinese civilizations to ancient Greece... The roar of the crowd is echoing around the world. But the bloodiest forms of the game, if game it is, were said to be found amongst the British. The severed heads of their enemies used as the balls in question. In 1863, the Freemasons Tavern in London's West End plays host to the Football Association's first meeting. Thirteen original rules are codified, and the game goes viral. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In last week's episode it was 1861 and we travelled with you to the United States of America as the civil war with all its heartbreak, tragedy and horror began ripping the country apart. Where are we this week? Hello Paul and hello fellow time travellers. Yes, the previous episode pivoted around the heartbreakingly poignant letter written by Major Sullivan Ballou to his beloved wife Sarah just before he set off towards battle. This week we're in London, England, attending a meeting in the Freemasons' arms that's about to kickstart a worldwide revolution. It's 1863 and the beautiful game is born. Good morning, Paul, and good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening to all the fellow time travellers, wherever and whenever you are. We're in London, in England, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This one, funnily enough, I think this would be the only one of the love letters. I'd have to say it's, it's genuinely quite a difficult one for me. This one stands out for what is perhaps an unexpected reason. 
On the one hand, I do, I suppose I might say, at an intellectual level, I wholly appreciate the significance of this moment in time that I'm about to describe. But the truth is, I don't actually feel it right here. But my dislocation from the passion involved is part of what does make today's subject interesting to me. <laughs> now, let me explain. It's basically about the establishment of the writing down for the first time of the rules of association football, which is soccer, which is the beautiful game. The rules were, were set in stone on a given day in history. And that really enabled uh, the spread around the world of the, the virus that is football. Uh, but it's got a backstory. Football has a historical backstory, and we'll get to we'll get to that in time. When I say that I don't, I never really have felt the passion that's associated with football. I've I've come close enough to it to I think get the message. The friendship groups <laughs> that I've had over the years have been heavily uh, influenced by love of football most people around me at any given moment have been football fans so I've been in the vicinity I've been in the company of football often and I, there was a very significant moment for me actually after years of, of just not getting it you know my dad didn't follow football and, and so it was never passed to me as a, as a family inheritance and, but I've always been around it and then when would it be it must have been in the 90s uh, I came across a book it was a bestseller at the time, and it was called Fever Pitch. It was by Nick Hornby. It was Fever Pitch that really made his name, and you know, and set him on the set him on the path to to fame and all of the rest of it. And I read Fever Pitch with great interest because it is about being a football fan. He charts the way in which his lifelong obsession with Arsenal Football Club has shaped his destiny and, and has affected his mood, man and boy. And I read it because I thought, right, I'll get an insight here. And I, I really did. It translated, I suppose, into a language I could understand, that which had hitherto been beyond me. It was around that time that I read the book that I was invited finally and accepted from a group of friends that were football fans, they were Celtic fans, as it happens. And they insisted practically, I was almost frog-marched to a pre-season friendly in Celtic Park between Celtic and Spurs, Tottenham Hotspur. And they were convinced that if I finally sat through a live game, I would get it. And of course, I had read Fever Pitch at that point, so I was prepared to be open-minded about the possibility. But I went, and within 10 minutes, I wished I had brought a book. So, that's my, that's my personal experience of football. But, as I say, on an intellectual level, who could fail? Who could fail to notice how much it has meant to so many people for such a long period of time? And when I said his, uh, football's got a historical backstory, it, it certainly does. It's been with us for thousands of years, more or less, in one form or another. Uh, archaeologists have found and excavated or revealed traces of uh, pitches with, with, with lines on them uh, delineating a game in Kyoto in Japan that come from millennia past. 
And we know that the the 3rd century BC Han Chinese clan family had a game that involved kicking a ball into a net. So it was some kind of football. The ancient Greeks played something similar thousands of years ago. In some unregulated form, groups of people coming together into two teams and focusing their attention on the movement of a ball across, you know, across some delineated area has been around from, from the beginning. And the funny thing is that the authorities, be it emperors or kings or, or whoever else, have, have always tended to object to the football-type game and have moved again and again through history to stop it and to ban it. And it's because, I think, well, there's a few reasons for that. It, it was always associated with extreme rowdiness. Until there were the rules of association football, for one thing, there was no control on the number of people per side. So you could end up with teams that were hundreds strong, with no restraint on the violence that went along with trying to get control of the ball. So various authorities you don't like they don't like rowdy they don't like they don't for they don't like any reason where hundreds if not thousands of people come together and give over to their base of nature it's just it's anathema to the authorities and these games of kicking a ball about were, were catalysts for that kind of unwanted behavior and believe it or believe it not but despite the fact that we, we know about it in Japan and we know about it in China and we know about it in South America and middle America all over ancient Greece it seems that the, the bloodiest versions of the game were always in Britain. And you go figure, but the, the, the accounts by people that witnessed the games seem to suggest that although it was always violent and always given to rowdiness, it was here in Britain that it became particularly vicious. There are scholars who say that the Celts, whenever they had a victory over a Roman force or managed to grab a luckless Roman, they would sever the head and, and throw and kick the head around in, in some kind of vindictive, celebratory, blood-soaked uh, game. And then there are others who say that the game started only in Viking times. So from the late 700s, Vikings were, were clashing with the, with the peoples of Britain. And there, there are records of Anglo-Saxons and others using a Danish head for a kickabout when the opportunity presented itself. So there was a very blood-soaked, in, in centuries and millennia past, there was a very blood-soaked element to what football seems to have been about, especially when you consider what was used for a football. And then from the, from the Middle Ages, 800s, 900s onwards, all, there are all sorts of stories more than you could possibly count from all over the British archipelago of communities coming together for massed games involving teams in the hundreds at least and all of it focused around a ball some kind of pigskin or, or, or leather ball on Orkney to this day there's the Kirkwall ball game and it, it kicks off literally uh, every New Year's Day just beside the doors of St Magnus Cathedral and the ball is kicked through the streets of the town 
and rules are, seem few and far between. And again, it's you know it's a massed gathering. There are other versions of similar in places like Duns, like Jedburgh, Roxburgh, uh, Schoon, which is what, a suburb of Perth. So a lot of it in Scotland, perhaps not surprisingly. James I was amongst the, the kings who put a, an edict in place to ban the game of football because he believed that the game was distracting men and boys from archery. And he, he put out a proclamation in Parliament that read, Nay man shall play at football. Short and sweet. So he was just he was just amongst the first. But from that point on, you see it again and again and again. London merchants, n- not long afterwards, made public their objection to the chaos that went with the games. Because, you know, they'd be... You know, they'd have uh, stalls and whatever in the streets. And wherever a game of football kicked off, murder and mayhem ensued. And so they wanted the, the game banned. Uh, in April 1314, England's King Edward II, he obliged the merchants in London. He he said, and I quote, There is a great noise in the city caused by hustling over large balls from which many evils may arise, which God forbid we command and forbid on pain of imprisonment such game to be used in the city in the future. Right. So that's Edward II's take on the not-yet-beautiful game. So on and on it goes, down through the centuries, boys and men playing with their balls to the upset of many around them. And Edward III banned it in 1349. Uh, in 1477, Edward IV banned it again. No person shall practice football, but every strong and able-bodied person shall practice with the bow for the reason that the national defence depends upon such bowmen. That's a recurrent theme. People saying that the game of football was distracting the very people who should be the the mainstay of the national defence. And so football bad, going to the butts and practising shooting arrows, that was good. So it's, 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 a, recurrent, it's a recurrent theme. And then, but despite all the efforts of, of kings and others to ban it, it was actually the industrialisation of the 18th and 19th centuries that kind of put the kibosh on these masked games. Also, in fact, even before the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, the enclosure of fields, you know, away from common grazing and so on, stopped the, the freedom of the, of, the, of the play of those wide-ranging games. And then, subsequent to that, industrialization. So more and more of the urban spaces were smothered with houses and factories and the dense populations that were required by the Industrial Revolution. So there were simply fewer places to play. And also, with industrialisation came industrialised lives. The poor people, the working class, if you like, that, that would have played football, were now herded into the factories where they had to work all day, you know, from sun up to sundown. Their time was absorbed, you know, and it's, it's the devil that makes work for idle hands, as they say. So there, there were no idle hands. After centuries of kings trying to stamp down on it, it was the agricultural and then the industrial revolutions that, one way or another, drove football to the to the fringes, and then. 
And then, and this is significant when you come to the modern game, around the middle of the 19th century, believe it or believe it not, half days became a thing. The workers were given half a day off, right? So rather than working six days and whatever, going to church on Sunday, it became the accepted norm that usually a Saturday was a half day. So people would only be in the factories till lunchtime. And then in the afternoon, the the free time presenting itself, the games, football started to come back. And there's an interesting little aside there, although it was usually a Saturday, in some of the industrialised towns in the north, notably Sheffield, the half day was Wednesday, not Saturday. Hence, Sheffield Wednesday as a football team. That's a, that's a, the name of a side that, that echoes the opportunity that presented itself you know, on, a, on a Wednesday afternoon to go and play football. It's also worth noting that uh, in that period where agricultural change and then industrialisation had its impact, the games of kicking a ball about found a safe haven in the public schools. And for those not in Britain, you would call them private schools. The public schools are the ones that are not the state, not provided by the state. In England, they're called public schools. It was in the public schools that those games had a... It was like a... I suppose it was like a little greenhouse away from the chill of the industrialisation that they were able, the game was able to survive. Uh, and it's also worth noting, people think of English public schools as big places of high-end education, which, you know, they became and they, and they may or may not still be. But in the period that I'm talking about, during the 1700s, to be honest, they were bear pits where the great families shoved their their adolescent boys to let them go through their times of adolescent wildness out of sight and out of mind. Those places like Eton and uh, Charterhouse and Harrow and Rugby and Winchester, they were places where only the strong could survive <laughs> in, all, in all manner of ways. And those rough and rowdy ball games, in one form or another, were in those schools. But they were all different. There were as many variations on the idea of a game involving a ball as there were schools. Rugby, obviously, for example, it stayed true to the idea of it being perfectly permissible to pick up and throw the ball, to pick up the ball and run with it. And so it was in that school that the roots of the game of rugby took shape and, and rugby survives into the, into the modern era as a result of what was going on in rugby school. But in other schools, it tended to be a game where you weren't allowed to touch the ball with the hand and it was it was something that was done with the feet. And as time went on, the headmasters and the teachers in those schools, they began to see that the violence of the games was part of making men out of boys. You know, the, the boys who were prepared to throw themselves into it and to endure it and to excel became or had the stuff about them of leadership. And so these schools, in part because of the influence of those games and sport in general, began to see that the future leaders of governments, the future leaders of the British Empire, would go through the, the, the fires of the testing grounds of these public schools, you know, with their commitment to, to rough quasi-violent sport, 
that popularity and the and the acknowledgement now from the authorities that there was a, a a useful application of these games meant that it identified or or it cast into the spotlight a practical problem. When the different schools, when a team from Harrow wanted to play a team from rugby or a team from Eton wanted to play a team from Winchester, when they actually came together, they couldn't play very effectively because they all had their own unique sets of rules that only operated within the school. And so that was a bit of a frustration rather than just playing with each other. You know, within the schools, they wanted to to take it out and take on other schools. So the seed was sown at that point of the realisation that they ought to standardise the game of football into something that could be understood more widely. And so we get to the, I suppose, the moment that matters in this love letter, which is Monday, late in the evening, actually, of Monday the 26th of October, 1863. In the Freemasons Tavern, so a pub on Great Queen Street in the West End of London, quite near to where Holborn Tube Stop is now, Holborn Tube Station. And therein, in that pub on that evening, some former public schoolboys got together to thrash out a set of rules for the game of football. According to the official record of that night, they came together, quote, for the purpose of forming an association with the object of establishing a definite code of rules for the regulation of the game. So there you have that idea. Let's make this a proper organised activity. And uh, the teams that were represented were Barnes Football Club, Blackheath Proprietary School, uh, the Civil Service, they sent in a team, Charterhouse School, Crystal Palace, actually no relation to the modern team of the same name, uh, the Crusaders, Forest, also known as Leightonstone, Kensington School, No Names Kilburn, uh, Percival House, Surbiton. Those were the teams that were represented that night. And they thrashed out, basically, that night, 13 rules. Now, those would be kind of, uh, you know, amended and tidied up and, and added to in the weeks following. But the first, those 13 rules, there and then, and to this day, are basically the rules of what became known as association football. And the short form of association football is soccer. The rule book of association football, the Bible of football, was published for the first time that same year, uh, so 1863. So from that point on, there were agreed rules for football, at least in England. And it was by those means, I suppose, it was by the it was by the coming together and the standardising of a game that everyone could understand that football did what it did, which is undeniable even to someone like me, which is that it's more than a sport. There's sport and there's football. Football uniquely taps into something. It's ancient, it's tribal. It plays to and satisfies that tribal instinct that so many people have. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that football works and affects and draws people in the same way as a religion. There are a lot of overlapping 
qualities about the nature of football and the nature of a religion. Both draw on something of the same innate passion and devotion in the followers. But it is the case that it was from the setting down of those 13 basic rules in 1863 in a pub in London that meant that the game could now spread. And, and it left behind its its origins, left behind its place of conception, if you like, and went all over. The first international match was played between Scotland and England, typically, uh, in 1872, and it ended in a goalless draw that took off in France in the same year, 1872. It was in Canada by 1876. Right? So you got people playing it. And really, from that point on, and it now has gone everywhere. I, I, I dare say football will have been played on Antarctica. It will certainly have been played on all the other continents and in every other country. And as has been stressed to me many times by lovers of the so-called beautiful game, it's because it's so simple. You just need a ball and some players, ideally an even number so you can get two even teams, and some coats or jumpers to mark the position of goalposts. And if all people concerned, or enough, have an understanding of the 13 basic rules of association football, then all those people can play football. They don't need to share a language. They don't need to share a religious faith. They can just come together and be united by and speak the language of football. It's a unifying, uniting practice, entity, whatever you want to call it. You know, I can see, although I don't necessarily feel it, I can see and I can understand that for the devoted, it provides fellowship in something bigger than the self. If you have a team to support, if you have a club to which you belong, then it's something more than you. That's what draws people to a religion, something that lets them transcend the everydayness of their existence and become part of something bigger and sometimes grander. And as I learned with Nick Hornby in Fever Pitch, paying attention to the triumphs and disasters of the club, it provides an alternative heartbeat by which to measure a life. So in addition to, or even in replacement for, a person's own humdrum, they can pay attention instead to what happens to the club and they can live and die and cry salty tears or howl with joy dependent on how the team is doing in the bigger scheme of football. And within it, football seems to be the, the setting for uh, occasional transcendent moments where an individual rises above the humdrum and courtesy of some mastery of the, of the game creates a shining moment that everyone can share. Tens of thousands of people in the moment can share it. And that's something that football delivers and I get that. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll end it. I'll end it by saying Bill Shankly, who's a Scot by birth, he was a player, uh, and legendary manager for Liverpool Football Club. And he's credited uh, with saying 
the, the following line. Some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I am very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you it is much, much more important than that. And I'll leave it there, football fans. <laughs> that is so funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. As soon as he could speak, he began asking questions about the world around him. Maths is the language the universe speaks, and his elegant mathematical equations are amongst the most beautiful ever written. Realising that electricity, light and magnetism were all manifestations of the same thing, his work paved the way for radio, television, radar, mobile telephones and the internet. He truly was a man who changed everything. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for the complicated times in which we live. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and so on. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd that they should join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.